Hi, welcome to another impacting sermon from NBC Church. We hope that this message encourages, challenges and equips you in your walk with Christ. Please consider leaving a review for the podcast as it helps with exposure and getting the gospel out to thousands of people. Thank you. Let's uh, pray together the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord Jesus, the entrance of your word gives light and it gives understanding to the simple. Thank you that the psalmist goes on and says, I open my mouth and pant, for I long for your commands. Feed us, Lord, and water us, because we're dry and thirsty people. And we ask too, Lord, that in a sense you make us drier and thirstier, so that we might hunger and thirst all the more for you in these days. Grant us now that spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know you better. Amen. Well, I make no apologies for the fact that three out of four Sundays, unless whoever preached last week, also brought Exodus 15. Uh, Three out of four of the last Sundays, we will be looking again at Exodus 15, the song of Moses, the song of the sea today. The preacher last week didn't bring Exodus 15, did he? No, that's all right then. Part of the reason why it's so important that we get our heads and our hearts and our spirits around the Song of Moses, the Song of the Sea, in Exodus 15, is because, as Revelation 15 tells us, it's a song that will be sung alongside the Song of the Lamb at a certain point in history, which from our perspective, though not from God's, is still future. And we'll get to that in a little while. Four weeks ago today, we introduced the Song of Moses, the Song of the Sea, in the context of what God had said, God's statement of intent in Exodus 6, verses 6 to 8, which we noticed was a sevenfold statement of intent on God's part about what God was going to do in bringing the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, delivering them from the bondage, from that slavery, redeeming them with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment and so on and so forth. And we compared those seven, that one sevenfold statement of intent from Yahweh, Adonai, Jehovah, the Lord, with the sixfold statement of intent that the enemies of God, represented by Pharaoh but with Satan speaking through him, speaks in the Song of Moses in Exodus 15. And we notice that whereas God's sevenfold statement of intent is bracketed by the words, I am the Lord, and then I am the Lord, Satan's statement, sixfold statement of intent in Exodus 15 is bracketed by, I will. And then suddenly he's gone. Because the breath of God has just destroyed him. Then we went on to note that the third cup 
that the Jews use at Passover is represented in the statement of intent of God in Exodus 6 verses 6 to 8 with the word, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. That's the cup that Jesus chose when after the bread he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. I will redeem you. That was week number one on Exodus 15. Week number two, which was two weeks ago now, we looked at another aspect of that sevenfold statement of God in comparison with Exodus 15. And we talked about the fourth cup of the Jewish Seder meal, the cup of acceptance. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. And then we went on a bit of a prophetic journey through the next and only 10 further instances of scripture where I will take you as my people and I will be your God shows up in scripture. And we notice that that's not random because there's four instances in the book of Jeremiah, four instances in the book of Ezekiel and two instances in the book of Zechariah culminating in Zechariah 13 verse 9. See, those of you that weren't here are thinking, I wish we could just get started today, but... I'm just letting you know what you missed. Zechariah 13, 9, where the tense of that statement, I will take you as my people and I will be your God, shifts when Jesus comes at the end of the tribulation in what we know as the second advent of Christ and God hears the remaining Jewish people on earth at that time in Jerusalem saying, and he says of them, it is my people. And they say, this, this Jesus, this Jesus is our God. So that's where we're at so far. All based, you can see how important it is, on the Song of the Sea, the Song of Moses in Exodus 15. We've just got a little bit to kind of finish off. I won't say polish off, because... This in itself is something quite special and important. We're looking at the second half now of the Song of Moses, the Song of the Sea in Exodus 15. And we'll also be referring to Revelation 15 and a little bit to Psalm 2, which was our opening reading today. Who is like you, Adonai, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your chesed, your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed. Notice, redemption comes first, and then the steadfast love of the Lord that never changes leads those people through no matter what. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Notice that phrase, your holy abode. We'll come back to that in a moment. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Or if you've got the King James Version, I think it says Palestinia there. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Edom, of course, being the descendants of Esau, the red one. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. The descendants of Lot by his eldest daughter. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. 
Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone till your people, O Lord, pass over or pass by. Till the people pass over or pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, which is the holy abode of verse 13. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Most of those verses are spoken in the present tense. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone. Present tense. Now where are the people of Israel when they're singing this song? They've just got through the Red Sea. They've just turned around and seen the Red Sea descending over Pharaoh and his 600 charioteers and whatever other troops he had with them. But now they've got the wilderness. But they're talking as though they're already in the promised land. What's that about? And people will say rightly, well, it's faith. Yes, of course it's faith, but it's faith based on what? I've heard commentators say something along the lines of, well, this song, they just got swept up in the song. And God kind of like just showed them things intuitively. I'm all for getting swept up in singing songs to Jesus. But I'm not convinced that we just get and they get things intuitively. The reason they're singing here as in the present tense about what's still future from their perspective is that they're finally getting the news that when God has said something, it's the most sure thing that you can depend on in the whole of the universe. For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. They're getting that. If you go back to Exodus 6, verses 2 to 8, that we looked at three or four weeks ago now, you will notice... I can't get my maths right. I can't remember whether it was three weeks ago or four weeks ago. Somebody will have to help me out with that afterwards. If you go back to that, you will see that the people were so downcast after God spoke those words to and through Moses about his sevenfold statement of intent, that they didn't believe him. Now they're believing it. Because the word of God is living. What does Paul say in 2 Timothy 3, 16? The word of God is God-breathed. And is therefore profitable for teaching or doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the servant of the Lord might be adequate. Do you know what? In this context, I'm really, really happy to be adequate. You know, sometimes we use the expression, don't we? It's more than adequate. When my wife tries to get me to change my car because she reckons it's a rust bucket, as she calls it. It's more than adequate, darling. What I mean by that is it does the job. And the word of God enables us to do the job. And you know what? That is so liberating to know that the word of God makes us not so spiritually perfect that we're flying just about in heaven already. It simply makes us adequate. Because I don't know about you, but before Jesus Christ got hold of my life, I was adequate for nothing. 
And if you met the people who knew me before Jesus Christ had really got hold of my life, they would testify and the queue would be down to the main road. Praise God that the word of God makes us adequate, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We're not yet what we will be. The word of God assures us that one day we will be. My wife will say then, she'll say, is that really you? But praise God that he frees us just to be ourselves and his word does the rest. The people of God, by the time they were singing the song of Moses, were starting to apply Exodus 6 verses 6 to 8 to their situation. And brothers and sisters, that is the key task of the Christian. To apply the word of God to our situation. Whether it be our personal inner life. Whether it be the confines of our own little home and circle of relationships. Whether it be the community that we live in. The job of work if we're privileged enough to have one that we do. Our national life and international life. By this time, these people were known as Hebrews. Remember three weeks ago, I said to you that prior to this point, they were known as the congregation of God's people, or simply my people. When Jacob came down into Egypt, there were 70 persons. They were an extended family. From this point on, they are a nation. And they are a nation of Hebrews. The mixed multitude that went up from Egypt, which racially, nationally, culturally, if you like, included non-Jews or non-Hebrews, had become, at this point, a nation. And they were a nation of Hebrews. Which is why in these verses that we've just quoted in the present tense from the Song of Solomon, the other nations around them are spoken of in the present tense and in national terms. Now the word Hebrew means to cross the river. If you transliterated the Hebrew word for Hebrew into English, it would be spelled like this. I-V-R-I-E. Ivri. And it simply means to cross the river. Why might that be so? Because when God first called Abraham, just after the Tower of Babel, had ended the first dispensation of God's reign on earth and started to bring in the second dispensation of God's reign on earth. In other words, he started to steward or administer his house, this earth, differently, though certain things remained the same, and we'll get into more of that next week. He called Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans, which was the other side of the river Euphrates. So to leave his father's house, his family and his nation and his idols behind in Chaldea, Abraham had to cross the great river of the Euphrates. He had to cross over to come out from what, had God, what God had called him to leave behind. The people of Israel are about to cross over into, 40 years after these events, mind you, the land that God had promised them. When God calls people out 
of something, to forsake something. He always leads them in to his inheritance. Always. The term Hebrew literally means to cross the river, and specifically the Jordan River, to go into the land that God had called them to. The Jordan River is known in Hebrew as the Yarden. And the interesting thing about the physical features of the Yarden or Jordan River is this. It starts way up high in northern Israel, the top of Mount Hermon. And it descends to the lowest point, not just of Israel, not just of the Middle East. Descends to the Dead Sea, the lowest point on earth. So when the people of God are called to be people who cross the river, they're called to be people who empty themselves, who allow God himself to empty them of all that they previously relied on, trusted in, everything else, including their own understanding. They're called to physically descend to the lowest point in order that God can and will raise them up. Where was Naaman the Syrian delivered from his leprosy? The Jordan River. Where was Elijah and Elisha when Elijah was taken up into the heavens and Elisha received his mantle, the cloak of the prophet, by the Jordan River? Where was John the Baptist when he sees Jesus and he says, I'm not worthy to loose the sandals off your feet, never mind baptize you. And Jesus says, suffer it so. The Hebrews were the people that had been crossed over the river. And we are people who have hopefully left one land and one set of things that we trusted in behind and we've moved in to the land of God's promise, the land of God's inheritance. So what does that land involve? What does it entail? What does it look like? Where is it? Verse 13 of the Song of Moses. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Verses 16 and 17. Sorry, 17. We'll just go for 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. Did they know at this point the significance of Mount Moriah? I put to you they did. They'd heard the stories of Abraham coming close to sacrificing his son Isaac and that God himself had said to Abraham stop because I myself will provide the lamb the sanctuary O Lord which your hands have established he's bringing them to Jerusalem on Friday of last week the Chief Justice of South Africa got into hot water not literally not because he was being baptized in anything although he is a Christian this man's name is delightful the Chief Justice of South Africa is called Mogweng Mogweng if you want to spell it it's easy because if you spell his first name you get his second name thrown in M-O-G-O-E-N-G 
Mugweng, Mugweng. On Friday of last week, anticipating what's going to happen on Wednesday of this week and the hoo-ha that's about to arise in the nations when it does happen, when Israel annexes parts of Judea and Samaria, where Jewish people live, Mugweng, Mugweng stood up, well, I think he stood up, he was interviewed. And he said, I have to say this, I am Chief Justice of South Africa, but I'm also a citizen of this country. And I'm also a Christian. And it causes me immense dismay that my government, which in every other realm I serve, and if this is government policy, then I'll serve them in this realm as well, but my government does not have a balanced perspective on Israel. The South African government withdrew their ambassador from Jerusalem, well actually from Tel Aviv because they never had one in Jerusalem because there's only three countries of the world got uh, ambassador in Jerusalem currently but that will change one day and that's a different story. Two years ago the South Africans redu- re- removed their embassy from, Jer- from Tel Aviv because they don't like the Israelis. And Magweng Magweng on Friday said this, he said, I read my Bible and I see that God says, those who bless Israel, he will bless. And those who curse or despise her will themselves be cursed. I say that with great sorrow as a South African. You can imagine the storm. They're not quite literally calling for his head as in the guillotine but they're calling for his head in every other domain of the word. This week is going to be a momentous week in world affairs. We don't know yet whether the Israeli government will pull back from that step on Wednesday or whether they will go ahead. I put to you that if they pull back on Wednesday, they're going to have to do it sooner or later because the land is getting too small, as Isaiah 49 tells us it will, And they need a settlement land. They need that land that is historic Jewish land. So personally, my prayer is that they won't pull back on Wednesday. But you see the significance of this song. Sung centuries ago, when the people of Israel came out of Egypt. They're basically saying in this song, in the verses we've read this morning, the nations don't like it. When the Jews move into the promised land. Nothing's changed. Most of the nations of this world do not like it. When Israel asserts its sovereignty over the land that God gave. Why is that? Because as we've talked about before. Anti-Semitism is a supernatural force. It's God hatred. Not simply Jew hatred. But as the song says, these nations that in those days were great nations, they're all going to pass away. Because Lord, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Turn, if you would, now to Psalm 2. Here you have it in greater graphic detail, applying to our own times in this wonderful prophetic psalm which speaks of the reign of Christ from Jerusalem. 
Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They don't like the restraint that God's word puts upon human behavior. But as we saw earlier from 2 Timothy 3.16, the word of God is God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, What's reproof? It's telling us off. And then in case we don't get it, it's also profitable for correction. Once we've been told off, this puts us right. Several years ago, my friend in Preston, Lancashire, England, rang me up in a bit of distress. This must be five years ago now. The reason she was distressed was the historic Christian bookshop, which was also a cafe in Preston, Lancashire, had been raided by police in broad daylight that week. What have they done? I hear you ask. This is why the police raided that Christian bookshop and cafe. Number one, they were playing Christian music that made exclusive claims about one God over another God. And number two, some of the plaques and things on the wall that also exalted the Lord Jesus was likely to cause offence to people if they walked in to that bookshop. But as you know, that's just part of the picture. Rainbow marches, gay, lesbian, bisexual, I could get arrested in some countries for saying what I'm about to say take place in our cities and people hardly blink an eye. And if they do blink an eye, they're classed as right-wing extremists. Because people don't want the restraint that God's word applies. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. That's speaking of a specific time in history that is still future from our perspective, but probably not far off. Speaking of the seven years of tribulation that are coming upon this earth. And terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, or literally the hill of my holiness. The word set there also means consecrated, poured out. God is saying, Jerusalem is holy because that's the place where I've chosen to pour out my king. To literally pour out his life. You see how glorious that is. God has chosen to pour out his life upon one place in this world so that the whole world might be redeemed. Hear the words of George Matheson's great hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. Those of you that know this hymn will know that George Matheson wrote this hymn after he'd gone blind. When George Matheson was told that he was going blind, his fiancée said, I'm breaking off the engagement because I don't want to be married to a blind man. These words were actually penned after his sister 
who had cared for him for many, many years after he'd gone blind but continued to be a minister of the gospel, said she was getting married and therefore you'll need to find somebody else to look after you, George. I'm sure she said that very, very lovingly. And what does he do? When he's left alone in his blindness, he pens a hymn called, O love that will not let me go. Acknowledging that his soul was weary. Verse 4 of that wonderful hymn. O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust, life's glory dead, and from the ground their blossoms red. Life that shall endless be. God promised, and God always keeps his word, that the Jewish people would and will recognize their king where his blood was poured out on behalf of the whole world. So let's turn to Revelation 15 and let's finish here today. I want to say to you again, everything in Revelation belongs in a specific point in history. Don't let anybody tell you that the book of Revelation is either allegory or a bit of an exploration or an attempt to describe what is going on in heaven all of the time. Some of it is an attempt to illustrate what is going on in heaven all of the time. But as you'll notice in Revelation 15, as we read it in a moment, this is fixed at a certain point in history, which I suggest to you is the end of the tribulation that is soon to come upon this earth. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. We will be looking a little bit more at the tribulation next week. But for anybody who's still not clear in their own mind as a Christian, Will Christians go through the tribulation or will they not? I put to you that the verse we've just read answers that question definitively. With the plagues that this fellow is about to describe, the wrath of God is finished. What were you delivered from, as well as your sins, when you became a Christian? You were delivered from the wrath of God. So no Christian will go through the wrath of God. So therefore, if there's a time coming upon the earth where the wrath of God will be poured out, and we know there is, because Jesus spoke about it, Paul spoke about it, the Apostle John was given revelation about it in the book of Revelation, Christians won't be there. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, notice who's doing the singing. Verse 2. Those who had conquered the beast 
and its image and the number of its name. That's not just any Tom, Dick and Harry Christian being spoken of there. That's people who have lived through the tribulation, who have become Christians in the tribulation and have been martyred for their faith. They're the ones that are doing the singing. And what are they singing? They're singing the song of Moses, Exodus 15. And they're also singing the song of the Lamb, which if you want to find out what the song of the Lamb says, turn to Revelation 5. We'll look at a short extract of it here. This is the song that all living creatures, we're told, are singing in heaven in Revelation 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you, were ra you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So the two songs that all of heaven is going to hear mingled gloriously together just before the wrath of God is finished upon the earth and the reign of Christ for 1,000 years is brought in. It's the song of the Jews coming out of Egypt. Birthed as a nation of Hebrews and the song of every people from every tribe and language a nation gloriously mingled together because one in Christ. Let's get simple now. Several people have just said, oh, thank you, Lord, that he's getting simple. Let's think about the order of what happened when Moses and the people went through the Red Sea and they sang this glorious song. The blood over the doorpost came first. And then the water of the Red Sea as they passed over came through those waters that followed. That's why Paul tells us in Corinthians that they were all of them baptised into Moses in the water and in the cloud. The blood of Christ secured yours and my redemption. Glory be to his wonderful name for that. And the water of baptism proclaims to the world that a soul has crossed the river left everything that previously held him or her behind to be a temple of the living God, a witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to give a challenge to anyone today who has not yet been baptised as a Christian. It's God and his grace alone that saved you. It's God in Christ that enabled you to cross the river, to come apart from where you'd once been and what you'd once been, and to come into your inheritance. But the water is still so important. So if there's a stirring in your heart today, Lord, I haven't done it.
I've put it off. Or if there's a stirring in your heart today, Lord, I'm still too young. Neither of those things matter. What matters is that identification with him, with his death, burial, and resurrection, to proclaim that you're a Hebrew. You're not Jewish or anything, but you're a Hebrew. You're one who's crossed the river. So if his spirit is speaking to you today, no matter how old or how young, no matter how embarrassed you may be that I should have done it years ago, God's word to you today is it's not too late. Believe and be baptised. And if what's going through your head or heart today is, oh, maybe I'm too young. Maybe mum and dad will think I'm too young. His word to you today is believe and be baptised. May his word live in you. Praise God that his living word has secured your place in his holy abode. But don't miss this opportunity if the Spirit of God is speaking to you of the waters of baptism today. Let's pray. Loving God and gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this song, this song of Moses, this song of the sea. Thank you for what you and your grace have enabled us to glean from it three of the last four weeks. Thank you that this song will still be sung at the point where Jesus is about to return because everything that God does shall endure forever and nothing can be added to it, nothing taken away. Lord, in your mercy, in your chesed, if there be any individuals in this place today who haven't yet taken the waters of baptism. May your spirit, Lord, continue to speak to them and to guide and direct them as only you can. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, world without end. Amen. Thank you for joining us for NBC Church Today. Our church meets at 1 McDonnell Street, Narracourt, South Australia, 10 a.m. Sundays. Bible studies during the week help dive deeper into the Word, and our mission is to see Jesus glorified across the country through biblical missions and evangelism. Please consider leaving a review of the podcast to help further God's kingdom. Thank you.